Well, folks, happy Sunday. Let us pray. Almighty God, in whose very image you shaped all the people of the world, past, present, and future, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts and minds will be pleasing and acceptable unto thee. Amen. Today I'm going to talk a little bit about defensiveness and pride, because I think that those are two key elements to this story. Understanding the interaction between Jesus and his disciples and who he is and who they are, who they perceive themselves to be. We have the character of this Canaanite woman, conveniently a minority figure in a community where she's quite obviously not welcomed. She's being told to get out of here by the disciples. And even Jesus himself seems to have this cruel insult that he levels at her. And I want to dig into this because I think that it's an important demonstration of the way in which Jesus teaches us as disciples. There are very few people on earth who, when they're confronted with uh, some kind of painful truth about themselves, something they've done wrong, a mistake that they've made, can react with grace instead of defensiveness. It's hard. I can think of times in my life when I've been having a rough day, I'm driving my truck, I'm not used to the speeds at which people drive on the S-curve here in Grand Rapids, it's like you all have a death wish. I have no idea how you do it, but you do it, and I get in the way a lot, apparently, and other drivers are happy to let me know that. (laughs) And sometimes in a moment of panic, I may turn my vehicle into the wrong lane or something and earn myself a honk. Now, I always use my turn indicator. A turn indicator is a stock uh, piece of equipment on every single vehicle manufactured, I think, since the 1950s, but God, people treat them like it's a $5,000 custom add-on. Use your turn signal. If I was in charge of cars, if you didn't use your turn signal, the car wouldn't turn. Um, I'm not in charge of cars, but all right, that's, that's not part of the sermon. I think that I probably pulled this gentleman off and realizing that I had just nearly been in a calamitous accident on the S-curve, I got off the highway, I pulled over into a gas station to collect my thoughts and who should I see pull up behind me but the fella that I just about sent to his Lord. And despite the fact that as I was getting off the highway, I was doing the thing that we all do when we mess up in our cars. I was apologizing to the universe. I'm, so, I'm sorry, everybody. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Didn't matter to him. He got out of his truck. He walked up to my truck. He had a big truck, like a big. I have a little bitty truck. I have a little Ford Ranger, you know, zipping around. And he had one of these F-350 sort of things. And I, he knocked on my window. And I rolled it down, and he said, Pardon me, good sir, but we were nearly in an altercation. No, that's not what he said. (laughs) I can't can't tell you what he said, because we're in church. And I knew I was wrong, and he knew I was wrong. And I was so tired, and I just got so defensive. I just wanted to be left alone for a minute in that parking lot. He didn't know what kind of day I was having. I took a deep breath, and I I said back to him, I matched his tone. I said, you know what, man? And he said, what? And I said, you're right. I shouldn't have done that, and I am sorry. And I'll pay more attention on the highway. 
Then he stared at me. I don't think that was what he was expecting. He said, good. And I said, good. We went on our way. That was the end of it. Getting called out when we mess up. Challenge for something we've done. It's so easy to just immediately get defensive. Jesus calls his disciples out all the time. All the time, especially in in the Gospels of Mark and Matthew. And the sin that he calls out amongst them so frequently is the sin of pride. Pride and defensiveness are linked. Defensiveness is a secondary reaction to wounded pride. And pride is a very biblical topic. It's one of the seven deadly sins. But there's a problem with preaching and pride and our understanding of pride. Of course, we're fond of saying pride was the first sin. Pride goes before the fall. You all know what that means, right? Pride being the first sin, the sin of the, of the Adam and the Eve, believing that they could eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and, and become like gods and be proud of that. And, and, and then the fall, right? That's why they say pride goes before the fall. But in the Bible, Old and New Testament, in the Greek, um, a lot of times you'll find an English word, and then there's a couple of different translations for that word. And so p- preachers love to get up here and do all of that and mess with it. There are 25 different words for pride in Greek. 25. And in English, they all get translated as pride. There's pride that is hubris, foolishness. There's pride that's blasphemy. I made a big list to read to you, but you can look it up on your own. It is one of the most complex Greek words translated into one of the simplest English words, right? We take all of these different concepts in Greek and we lump them all together into pride. And so I see a lot of really cheap preaching being done, especially during Pride Month in June. How many of you saw People getting all up in arms about the, the, the gay community having a pride festival and, and the easiest softball underhanded thing to do would be like, well, pride is a sin. I can't believe they're having a festival for it. And that's ridiculous. Because the pride of sin, the sinful form of pride is so foreign to what's being celebrated in June. But we don't have many different words for pride. Well, I think that When this story gets read, a lot of people say, well, here's evidence of Jesus changing his mind. This is the moment when he decides, oh, the Canaanites are also in with the Jews. That doesn't really wash for me. I think that Jesus is smarter than that. It's the disciples that are complaining about this woman, right? Not him. The disciples are complaining about the presence of this minority, the, the, in the Bible, in, in, in uh, uh, the, Mark's telling the story, she's shouting at them. She's, the word is more like kind of squawking at them, harassing them, haranguing them. Jesus doesn't answer her. I think he's waiting to see what the disciples are going to do. I think that's what he's doing. But they say, send her away. She's annoying and loud and different, weird. She's not even a part of our group. She's a Canaanite. He answers the disciples. He said, now, it's, it's important to note who he addresses here. He says to the disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He doesn't say this to the woman. 
He says this to the disciples. Now, I think he's, he's trapping the disciples in their pride, in their hubris. I think he's setting a trap for them. He wants them to reveal their implicit bias. They say, Lord, send this woman away. She's not a part of our people. She's a Canaanite. And Jesus, as though to confirm their position, says, and I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, right? And I can imagine the disciples, all of them saying, yes, yes, that's right. That's right. Us. That's us. Israel. We're the best. Paul addresses it today in his words to the Romans. To boast. To be of these people. Through no real sacrifice of your own. But we'll get to that in just a second. The woman kneels before Jesus and in sight of these same disciples begs for mercy. And Jesus then says this cruel word. He says it's not fair to throw the children's food to the dogs. I wonder if he looks back over his shoulder at this point to the disciples. And see what they say. See how they react. Give them an opportunity to behave. (laughs) And I wonder if he sees them perhaps smiling. That's right. Yeah. I wonder if he sees a few disciples, maybe Peter, maybe some of the others, perhaps looking a little bit unsure. Maybe frowning and shaking their heads saying, well, we, we just wanted her to be sent away. We, we didn't say that she was a dog. This doesn't feel right. Jesus and the woman sparing a glance at the disciples. And she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs from their master's table. Is she referencing the disciples? Perhaps the disciples' shame is made complete. They see their pridefulness. If Jesus is her master, as she says, then she is their sister. And they stood there and watched as she was called a dog. Perhaps they had done so many times before in their lives. For shame. Jesus says to the woman, again in full view of those same disciples, Woman, get up. Great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. I imagine them continuing on their way that afternoon, maybe this kind of sullen shame falling over them as they realize that they were prideful in something they had no control over. Thinking about that woman... It's hard to find out that you've got a personal bias against something that you did nothing to earn and can do nothing to change. The disciples didn't choose to be born as children of Israel, and that woman didn't choose to be born as a Canaanite. It is a matter of the random lottery of birth. But I see it today, all around us. People taking pride in stuff that they had nothing to do with. Everybody wants to be on a team. I get it. You want to know who you are and negotiate your identity? Teenagers are huge at this. They haven't had time to do great deeds and fully flaunt their pride, in the great words of Vachel Lindsay, uh, the, the Chicago master poet. That's 
that's who they are. They, they're finding out who they are and they discover something about themselves and they get excited about it, you know? Now, there are teams that take work that you've got to put some work into, but there are so many other teams that you did nothing to earn. Your ethnic and racial background, perhaps, but your gender is a big one. Gender is like the first team that we get introduced to as little kids. We get stuck on that team. What is it? What's the first thing they ask you in the grocery store when you've got a baby? Or God help you, three. But is it a, is it a boy or a girl? I don't know, man. It, it needs a lot of diapers. <laughs> Which team is it on? My team or the other team? Nationality is like this in many cases. But I take pride in being an American. I love America. I think America's great. It's where I keep all my stuff. I don't know what I'd do without America. But I didn't do anything to be an American. I came out of my mom and she was an American. Congratulations. Here's your ticket from the government. Now there are people that work very hard to become Americans. I've met them. When you see an immigrant, somebody who actually made it, that is somebody who put their picture on the flag. They worked their butts off. You come from somewhere else, you make that difficult journey, but I don't think it's particularly valuable for me to boast about being on Team Male or Team White or Team America. I, didn't, I, I stormed no beaches in Normandy. I built no highways. I erected no transcontinental railroads. I've done my best to carry my load. There are some things that I have built that I'm very proud of. I'm proud of my homestead. I'm proud of my three awesome children. I'm proud of my marriage. Heather invested a lot into that. I'm proud of my career. I'm proud of every baptism and every wedding that I've officiated. I'm proud of every single service I've held where I sent a Christian home for the last time, gathered their family, and gave them a sense of peace and hope. Those are things to be proud of. I, uh, I fixed an Ikea dresser yesterday. It took me six hours. <laughs> I'm very proud of that. But these are things that we've built. And today, when I look at the news, I see a lot of young American men, especially young white men, calling themselves proud, got proud boys running around now, picking fights with people, storming the Capitol, putting on American flags. So proud in something that they had absolutely nothing to do with. The disciples are proud that they're children of Israel. But that pride blinds them to the humanity of this woman. In this instance, they've stopped worshiping God, at least the God that is present in the other, and they've started worshiping themselves, their own identity. Worshiping the things about themselves that make them feel good, maybe. Make them feel better. It's, uh, there was a word for it. It's called autolatry. Autolatry, worship of the self. It's a very kind of nefarious kind of uh, sin, and it's a form of idolatry. It's a hard one, again, because we don't have a lot of good words for pride. I'm trying to be a good dad. I read all the dad books, uh, doing my best, 
And today they tell us it's good not just to tell your child you're proud of them, but you should say the words, you should be proud of yourself when they do something big. You should be proud of yourself. Um, and I do tell them that. I want them to take pride in their accomplishments. But I'm also proud of them. Um, but it's not a feeling of superiority to others. Jesus calls us to do the opposite, to deny ourselves, take up the cross, follow me, he says. He doesn't just say you love yourself, put down your burden, follow your nose. Quite the opposite. When, and I know it's idolatry. The reason I know it's idolatry is because whenever anybody gets defensive about something, you're getting close to a form of idolatry. God's jealous. God wants only our worship. And whenever people, I think, start to get defensive about something, you're poking at a little God that they've fashioned for themselves. It's why it's irrational to, to do so, but people do it. We're called in to defend our behavior. It's easy to get defensive and make excuses and blame others, circumstances, whatever. I hope uh, that you know that I would, I believe the things that I say up here and I try very hard to never judge or discriminate against people for, for who they are. I've been a part of social justice movements and anti-racism work for most of my adult life. But I, I grew up in an all-white town, going to an all-white school, surrounded by all-white people. I didn't make my first African-American friend until my third year in college. I was 20 years old. And so I don't think for a second that there isn't some toxic nonsense rattling around inside my head. That's why I need Jesus. That's why I read the Bible every single day. It's not because I've got it all figured out. It's because I know how much I don't know. And what I could say without hesitation that I would never consciously discriminate against someone, we can have the best intentions in the world. But we've got some deep programming in our brains. I see it a lot with our relationship with the poor. In America, poverty is a unique experience in that in most American minds, poverty is associated with a character flaw or a lack of work ethic or something like that. That's a very uniquely American approach to poverty. When I lived in uh, uh, the Levant in the Middle East, if somebody was poor, the, the, the reaction was to figure out who was to blame for their poverty. And a lot of the times it would fall on the family. And so you didn't see homeless people be unheard of. The families would never allow that shame to fall on their own families, that, that they wouldn't take care of somebody who was their own. But um, we have to check that stuff. We have to think. We have to put ourselves in the disciples' shoes and not just see a Canaanite, but rather see a sister in pain. And none of us are colorblind to this stuff. And none of us are more deserving of God's mercy. Well, what is this? So I'm just trying to make us feel bad. No, I, what I want for us is to have pride, have a sense of accomplishment and achievement in our lives. But for the things that we've actually done, contributed to, God pours out God's own abundance on every single person. And none of us can lay claim to any more than we need to survive. So I propose that we give ourselves this week a little sabbatical from defensiveness. Especially when it's employed in the service of the worship of self. If we 
give ourselves a break from defensiveness. When we feel attacked or threatened or challenged or called to the account for our behavior, just take a deep breath. In the next generation, we're going to have some real hard conversations about reparations in this country. And there's going to be a lot of knee-jerk responses to this. And one of the worst is this question of, am, am I being blamed for the crimes of my ancestors? And no, you're not. That's not what reparations is about. Reparations is about healing wounds that were made in our country a long time ago so that we can become stronger as a nation, a nation of Americans, Americans who are all wildly different from one another and represent all walks of life. Remember, there are a thousand Americans born all around the world every single day. They just haven't come home yet. And when they do, we want them to find an America that is worth coming home to. Humility, humanity, and discernment are the antidotes for feeling defensive. And the greatest medicine for curing us of any kind of sinful pride, I think, is proximity and then empathy. Proximity means having relationship with somebody who you disagree with or who is different from you, or more importantly, who you've been taught to treat with suspicion, or who you've been raised to think of as the other, as the Canaanite in your life. Proximity. And then, as we see in this story that we just heard from Matthew, they become proximate to this Canaanite woman. And despite everything that they've been taught to think about these people, these others, these outsiders, these Canaanites, Jesus traps them into having empathy for her. And empathy is deadly to the sin of pride. Empathy ends any sense of pride over the other that we might have been harboring in our hearts. Proximity, and then empathy, empathy. So much of this has very little to do with the circumstances we were born into that we didn't ask for, but rather they represent real accomplishments, which are the fruits of the Holy Spirit, the kinship that we share. Beloved, our Savior calls us to love all, and in doing so, be the leavening that helps lift the world. We've got to be active, activated, fighting on behalf of the people who have been set outside the boundaries of community and outside of life. Because that Canaanite woman with that sick daughter is still out there. Remember, the Bible is not a history book. It's not just stuff that happened. It's not a prophecy just for the future. It's a book about what's happening right now. Right now. So she is out there pleading. The poor Canaanite woman crying for mercy. And she may not look anything like us, but the Bible says her eyes are fixed on Jesus. And so if we find her, I think we'll know where to look to find our Savior. Let's find her there, and let's join her this week in the presence of our Lord. Praise God.
Amen.